You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The Apostle Paul was born a citizen. He didn't purchase it with a large sum of money. And that had a ring of truth to it. And so I said, uh, I don't think so. I think it was, uh, I think he purchased it. And they said, no, he didn't. So he turned to Acts chapter 22, verses 27 and 28, where the commander said to the Apostle Paul, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, yes, I am. And the commander said to Paul, I purchased my citizenship with a large sum of money. And the Apostle Paul says, I was born a citizen. I was actually born a citizen. Now, I had gone by my memory, and that conversation was seared, seared into my memory. And it was wrong. And that should teach us all three lessons. First of all, it's possible to have something seared, seared into your memory that has no basis in fact whatsoever. Second, I shouldn't trust my memory. And I can't remember what the third one was, but I know there was a third one. <laughs> we got to talking about Saul of Tarsus or the Apostle Paul because he's in the shadows behind everything that has happened to Stephen thus far. The synagogue of the freedmen, which consisted of men from the province of Cilicia, has risen up against Stephen. And you may remember the principal city of Cilicia was a city named Tarsus. And you'll see the Apostle Paul come into Stephen's, uh, Luke's narrative after Stephen's execution or right at his execution. And they lay their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's not some young man just passing through the street that they commissioned to hold on to their coats. He is behind this whole thing. And I think he was one of the members of the synagogue of the freedmen. I think he was one of the people who publicly debated Stephen, or at least he was involved in that debate. And I think he is one of the men who is adamantly opposed to Christianity so much that he's willing to kill this young man. And so later on in chapter 7, he's involved in doing just that. But let's not get ahead of ourselves because we have to deal with Stephen's defense before the council. Stephen, you may ask yourself, why? how could they be so infuriated, so hateful to a man like Stephen? There are several reasons. One of them is because he has publicly bested them at a debate. Remember, they rose up and argued with him. And Luke says they couldn't cope with his wisdom and they couldn't cope with the spirit in which he presented his case. And since they can't deal with any of his arguments, they do the next best thing. That is attack the person. So they switch to a personal attack against Stephen and they and they raise up men who bring false accusations against them. Now, Stephen's address that I think is one of the best sermons ever preached in Acts chapter 7. Not everybody shares that opinion of Stephen's message. Um, George Bernard Shaw said Stephen was an intolerable bore who all he did was recite common historical episodes that the whole nation, particularly his hearers, were familiar with. And he was just did so tediously and he was... Uh, cruel and intolerable and just boring to listen to. I don't think so. I think that the emotion behind his words increased and increased and increased to that at the very end in chapter 7, verse 54, they gnashed their teeth at him. You don't gnash your teeth at somebody who's an intolerable bore. 
you close your eyes to somebody who's an intolerable bore. They didn't do that with Stephen. This is a gem of a message because it does two things. Number one, it answers the accusations that they've made against him. And second, Stephen takes the history of the nation of Israel and he traces one key theme from the very beginning with Abraham all the way through to their modern day. That one key theme that he brings up over and over and over again, and then he closes with it and he hits them right between the eyes with the truth of their rejection of the Messiah. And it is that one theme that he develops through the whole message, and the theme is this. The nation's consistent rejection of God. That's the theme. That's the one thing that Stephen wants them to know. Now, we would normally take a passage like this and divide it up into five or six Sundays, but I think that we would be better served if we're able to get the whole gist of the whole message and just look at it as one complete whole. Because the point is really not in the minute details of the history that he's giving. All of that is a backdrop for this theme that he's developing. This one thing that he wants them to understand, and that is that the nation had rejected God. Now, before we look at the sermon itself, we have to ask ourselves, why is it recorded here? Why does Luke take 53 verses in Acts chapter 7 and spend 53 verses on a sermon that Stephen preaches? Why did he do that? There's a reason for it. You realize this is the longest recorded speech in the whole book of Acts? It's longer than Peter's sermon in chapter 1, Peter's sermon in chapter 2, or chapter 3, or chapter 4, or chapter 5. It's longer than any sermon up to this point. And listen, it's even longer than all of the Apostle Paul's sermons recorded in the book of Acts. And Paul's the hero of the book. So why does Luke take 53 verses to record in such minute detail this sermon that Stephen gave? Why does Luke do that? It is because Acts chapter 7, and this is how I want you to think of this chapter, Acts chapter 7 is the hinge upon which the book turns. Acts chapters 1 through 6, Luke has been primarily interested in the evangelization of the Jewish community. It's in Jerusalem. Here's how the church grew in Jerusalem. Here's the opposition that they faced in Jerusalem. Here's how they dealt with the internal problems that came up in Jerusalem. Then you get to Acts chapter 8, and guess what you find? You see Philip going to Samaria, then Philip going to Ethiopia and The Gospel goes to Samaria and then Ethiopia. Acts chapter 9, we have the conversion of the Apostle to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10 and 11, you have the conversion of Cornelius the Gentile through Peter's ministry. And then Acts chapter 13 launches the beginning of the Gentile mission to all of the Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul is at the head of that. And that takes us all the way through to the end of the book. So Acts chapter 8 through 28 is the Gospel goes to the Gentiles. Acts chapters 1 through 6 is the Gospel to the Jews. And right in between that is Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, where he chronicles the rejection of the nation of Israel. And he says to them, your forefathers rejected God, now you are rejecting God, and they rejected the Gospel, they rejected their God and their Messiah, and then they sealed it with Stephen's blood. And from Acts chapter 8 onward, it's Gentile mission after that. Because the Jews have rejected it. That's why Luke spends so much time giving us this message. He wants us to understand something. The nation of Israel had rejected their Messiah. They had rejected the Gospel. They were stiff-necked, and they resisted it. And they sealed that rejection with Stephen's blood. And from this point forward, the Gospel goes out to the Gentile world. Acts chapter 7 is the hinge. The Gospel goes to the Jews, first part. Now it's going to the Gentiles. What was the crucial event that started that change? It was their final rejection of it. And they killed Stephen and sealed their rejection with his blood. So that's why Luke records it. 
And he's going to trace that one theme of the nation's rejection of God, and he's going to illustrate it in four ways. First, he's going to illustrate it with Joseph. Then he's going to illustrate it with Moses. Then he's going to illustrate it with the temple. And then he's going to illustrate it with their Messiah. So he gives to them four very profound, very powerful illustrations as he traces their history and shows their rejection of God. So let's begin with verse 2. Stephen begins by showing the nation rejecting their God as illustrated by Joseph. So in verse 2, he begins, In the beginning of the nation, the God of glory appeared to Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And God appeared to him and he gave him a promise. I'm going to raise up from you a nation, and I'm going to give this land that that I'm calling you to, I'm going to give it not to you, but to your descendants. And so Abraham believed that promise that God was going to raise up from him a son, And he, after his father died, he left there and he went into that land. And God gave him that promise again. And then God gave to his descendants the mark of circumcision, which was that outward sign of the covenant. And so Abraham had Isaac, verse 8. Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had the twelve patriarchs. He doesn't spend a whole lot of time going from Abraham down to the twelve patriarchs. He does it rather quickly because his point really is in verse 9. But I want you to notice how Stephen has uh, answered the accusation against him concerning his blaspheme God. Do you remember what basically the four parts of the accusation were? They said he spoke words against Moses and against God. Specifically, he said, they said, that Stephen said, Jesus would come back and he would destroy the temple and he would alter the customs handed down through Moses. So they said he has blasphemed God and he's blasphemed Moses. He has attacked the temple and he has attacked the law. Well, Right out of the gate, Stephen answers this objection that they raised about him blaspheming God. How does he describe God? He is the God of what? Glory. Does that sound like a blasphemer? He is the sovereign God who appeared to Abraham and said, I'll make of you a nation. He didn't appear to anybody else. But he's a sovereign God who appeared to Abraham and gave him a promise. And then he gave him the sign of that promise. And he kept that promise. So Stephen, right out of the gate, portrays God as a sovereign God of glory who makes his promises and keeps his promises, regardless of what men may do. Does that sound like the words of a blasphemer? They're not. This equates to a not guilty plea on Stephen's behalf. He's really not trying for an acquittal. As you're going to see, he begins now to mention the theme that he's going to trace through the rest of the book. Verse 9, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all of his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Look at the first phrase. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. Joseph was a man whom God favored. He had showed him grace and favor. He even showed Joseph favor through his father, Jacob. But what did the twelve patriarchs do? The twelve heads of the twelve tribes of Israel the leaders of the nation, the founders of the nation, these men whom they revered and loved and respected and whom every Jew could trace his ancestry back to one of these 12 men. What did they do? They became jealous, and rather than recognizing God's favor which rested on Joseph, they rejected God's favor which rested on Joseph, and they hatched in their jealous, wicked, envious, sinful hearts this murderous plot against him that was only only saved by one of Joseph's brothers who somehow thwarted that and got Joseph spared alive, but they still sold him into slavery. Then you took that tunic that Jacob gave him, they dipped it in blood, they said, oh, we found this along the way, on the way home. He was attacked, and they had this lie to their father, this sin of selling their brother into slavery. Rather than recognizing Joseph's place in the founding of that nation, 
They rejected him. They resisted God's plan. They sold him into Egypt. And what Stephen is showing is the nation's rejection of their God began with the very founders of the nation right back at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then here's how the 12 patriarchs rejected their God. Sold Joseph into slavery. But God was with him. And you know the story as well as those who Stephen is speaking to. Joseph got down to Egypt. God showed him favor there. He became head over the whole land. Verse 11, a famine came over the land of Egypt, and Jacob was involved, uh, suffered from that famine as well. He heard there was grain in Egypt, thought Joseph was dead. His brothers didn't know what had happened to Joseph. Jacob sent his brothers down to Egypt to buy grain. And you remember Joseph saw his brothers come in, and he sold them the grain, and then he did that whole manipulative sort of thing to get them to see if their hearts had really changed. And on the second time down there, Stephen says that, Joseph became known to all of his brothers and Pharaoh and Joseph's brothers became known to Pharaoh and Pharaoh invited Jacob and so the whole family came down there and he traces this history and the family arrived in Egypt and then our fathers died and they were buried in their respective places and and so he traces all the way through Joseph showing that the nation's rejection began when the patriarchs rejected Joseph. Joseph was a deliverer. Joseph was a man who was shown favor. He had every right to be part of the founding of that nation. But the twelve patriarchs rejected him. It was only symptomatic of their rejection of God. So he illustrates it with Joseph, beginning in verse 17. He illustrates it with Moses. But the time of the promise was approaching. See, God had told Abraham, I'm going to put your descendants in a foreign land for 400 years and they'll be abused and then I'll bring them out and they'll serve me in this land. That time was approaching. And Stephen says Moses was born because there arose another Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And he oppressed the people of God in that land. And so Moses was born. Moses was God's chosen deliverer. And look in verse 20 how Stephen describes Moses. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God. Verse 22, he was a man of power in words and deeds. Now Stephen is sensitive to the fact that he's been accused of blaspheming and speaking against Moses. So how does he describe Moses? He is lovely in the sight of God. He was the recipient of God's blessing and God's favor, and he was, in God's sight, Moses was special. He's not a blasphemer of Moses. He's not speaking against Moses. But he describes him as a man full of power and deeds. Moses seemed to have understood that he was the nation's deliverer. He looked down at verse 24. He saw one of them being unjustly treated. He defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed, that is Moses, supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they didn't understand. And on the following day, Moses went down there and he saw two of the Israelites fighting and he broke it up and he tried to separate them. And he said, your brethren, why are you fighting? And then what happened? One of the Israelites said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? What is that? It's rejection. They didn't understand who Moses was or what Moses had come to do. Moses thought they would understand. I'm their deliverer. So he went down and he separated this fight and they rejected him. Who made you a ruler and a judge? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? And Moses fled into Midian. Forty years went by. They rejected Moses then. Forty years went by. And God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And he said, take off your sandals. The ground on which you stand is holy. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I've heard the cry of my people, and I'm bringing them up, and I'm sending you out. In Exodus chapter 3. And Moses, of course, resisted that call, but eventually went down and did what God had told him to do after those 40 years. Verse 35, 
Moses went down, and this Moses whom they disowned. You see the theme again? What was it with Joseph? The twelve patriarchs rejected him, sold him into slavery. How about with Moses? Who made you a ruler and a judge over this? Verse 35, this Moses whom they disowned. They rejected him the first time. They rejected him when they came back. They resisted the deliverance of God from Egypt. He hauled them out into the wilderness and they complained and they mumbled and they groaned and they rejected the purpose and the plan of God. And the rejection of Moses was only symptomatic of their rejection of God. Look down at verse 39. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to Him, that is Moses, and they repudiated Him. The rejection of Moses stemmed from their rejection of God because Stephen says their heart turned back to Egypt. They said, we don't want you over us, Moses. Who made you a ruler and a judge? We want to go back to Egypt. Did they want to go into the land that was promised with all of the blessings? They want to turn back to Egypt. And so there in the wilderness, Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he received the law. And when he came down, what did he find? The people frolicking and worshiping idols. In fact, Stephen gives them the verses from Exodus. This the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. After they had reputed him, verse 40, he said, the people said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For the Moses who led us out of the wilderness, the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And at that time, they made a calf and they brought and they sacrificed to the idol. Where were their hearts? What were their hearts doing? Rejecting God. While Moses is on the mountain and God is carving into tablets of stone, thou shalt not commit adultery, the people at the base of the mountain are doing that very thing. While Moses is on the mountain and God is carving into the stone, thou shalt have no other gods before me, the people are down at the base of the mountain saying to Aaron, here's our gold, make for us a god. And they did it. And Moses came down with the law and he found that the very forefathers that these people revered had rejected God and rejected the law before it was even delivered to them. Rejection. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. They rejected the land. They rejected the law. They rejected the lawgiver. It's a one long history of rejection. And the people said... Or God says in the book of Amos, and this is quoted in verse 42, It was not me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Rampha and the images which you made to worship, and I will remove you beyond Babylon. The rejection of God at the base of Sinai in their idolatry was symptomatic of their whole history. From Egypt all the way through past and beyond the Babylonian captivity, their history was marked by one thing, idolatry. They never seemed to be able to worship the one God who had delivered them and revealed Himself to them. Always falling into idolatry time and time and time again. And it started in the wilderness. And it was started beyond, before the wilderness. They brought into the wilderness these gods and they worshiped them. And while God is giving the law on the mountain, they're rejecting Him. Rejecting the law. And rejecting their deliverer. One long history of rejection and idolatry. Now listen, their rejection is illustrated by the rejection of Joseph. And it's illustrated in their rejection of Moses. And the third thing, it's illustrated in their rejection of the temple. Look down at verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle and testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. In other words, we had the, we had the physical, visible representation, the symbol of God's presence right with us in the wilderness. Did that help them at all? They're still idolaters, aren't they? Here's the symbolic presence of a symbol of God's presence 
right there amongst the people. And what do they do? They turn to idolatry and they reject that. And that tabernacle followed them, Stephen says, out of the wilderness, across the Jordan River, into the promised land, and they had it all the way up to the days of David. David wanted to build God a temple, but God said to him, no, your hands are too bloody. You've shed too much blood and, and uh, been at warfare too much. I'll have your son Solomon build me the temple. So Solomon did it. And here's Stephen's, here's the irony of the point. Whether they had the tabernacle in their presence or the temple in their presence, whether they, whatever physical representation of the presence and the blessing of God was with the nation, they rejected that and they were idolaters. All the way through to the Babylonian captivity when God destroyed the temple and drove them out of the land. Idol worshippers. God rejecting licentious idol worshippers. That's the history of the nation. That's what Stephen's been pointing out. Now here's the other theme that Stephen's sort of been developing. I've, I've only mentioned one. That's the rejection of God. There's an, another theme here that's sort of followed Stephen all the way through the message. It goes back to the beginning, actually verse 2, and that is the presence of God outside the temple. Have you noticed that? Where was God with Abraham? In Mesopotamia. Abraham came out of Mesopotamia and went into Canaan. Where was God? In Canaan. When Joseph was sold into Egypt, where did God go? With Joseph into Egypt. And when the nation came down there, God went with the nation into Egypt. God was with his people in Egypt. He was with Moses in Egypt. When Moses went back to Midian, where was God? He was in Midian with Moses, and appearing to Moses and saying, the land on which you stand is holy ground. It's holy because God was there. Listen, no tabernacle, no temple. Where's God? He's with his people. He's with his people back in Egypt, and he says, I've heard their cry, so I'm sending you back there. And then he went with Moses from Midian back to Egypt. And then when Moses took the people out of Egypt into the wilderness, did God stay in Egypt, in a temple, in a tabernacle? No, he was with his people all the way into the wilderness, from the wilderness all the way up into the promised land and all the way through to the Babylonian captivity. Throughout the whole nation of Israel, Stephen is saying God has been on the move. He was with Moses, Abraham in Mesopotamia all the way through to the Babylonian captivity. He was with us in Babylon. That's why Stephen can say the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. They understood God to be confined to the temple. This physical building. And one thing Stephen is trying to drive home is that God is with His people. It's not a building. They said, you're a blasphemer because you speak against the temple. And Stephen's saying, it's not me who's blaspheming God. It's you who's blaspheming God. Because you think that God resides in this little physical building on earth. And the prophet said, the heavens are the throne of God and the earth is His footstool. And when Solomon built the temple, Solomon said, heavens of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built. Solomon would have never made that mistake. David would have never made that mistake. Moses and Joseph and Abraham all understood that God is with His people. One thing Stephen's trying to drive home to them is that God is a pilgrim God. He's with His people wherever He drives them, wherever He directs them, wherever He moves them, wherever He calls them. God is there and He's promised to never leave them or forsake them. They made the mistake of thinking that the temple was the prison of God's essence. And Stephen is reminding them it's the symbol of God's presence not the prison of his essence. You can't confine him to that building. So he has said the nation has a history of rejecting God. It started with the 12 patriarchs. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. They rejected the law before it was given. They rejected the lawgiver and committed idolatry. They rejected their God. And they also rejected the presence of God in the temple and continued, even though he was supposedly there physically in, in his presence, that symbol, they continued to turn their hearts away in idolatry. Now, Stephen needs a good close. If you're going to have a good conclusion to a good sermon, you've got to speak 
specifically, not to people who have lived hundreds of years ago, but you've got to nail the people who are there with some point of application. And that's what Stephen does next. And he shows them that their rejection of God is illustrated even by their rejection of the Messiah. Look at verse 51. You men, right? We've moved from Abraham all the way through the Babylonian captivity, and now Stephen is all the way up speaking to these men. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Stiff-necked meant obstinate. And the word that he uses comes right out of some of the texts that he's quoted all the way through the passage. It comes from Exodus chapter 33. After the golden calf incident, God said, these people are an obstinate people, a stiff-necked people. It means an, an unrelenting, unyielding, will not bow before God. You're a stiff-necked people and uncircumcised of heart. That was the equivalent of calling them as unclean in the sight of God as any Gentile. This was the ultimate condemnation for a Jew. Uncircumcised. Although they had the physical sign of the covenant on their body in the form of circumcision, Stephen says you lack the inward reality of being God's people. You lack the inward reality of an obedient heart. The circumcision was only meant to symbolize or portray a heart that had been circumcised and given to God. And he says, you're uncircumcised in your heart. He couldn't say they were uncircumcised, but he does say, your heart is unclean because it's never been marked by God. You're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You, he says, are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They have a long history of persecuting the prophets. God sent them Joseph. They persecuted him. He sent them Moses. They persecuted him. They sent them Christ, and they persecuted him. All of the messengers that God ever sent to the nation, they rejected, and they persecuted, and they hated, and they resisted him. And Stephen says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? All of those men who announced the coming of the righteous one, you killed. But here's the, here's the powerful point. You're worse than them. They announced the coming of the righteous one, and you killed them, but you've done one, your fathers killed them, but you've done one worse. You've killed the righteous one. That's why it says, his murderers and betrayers, you've now become. You've received the law, but you have not kept it. Didn't the law say, thou shalt not murder? And what did they do to Christ? They rejected the law, and they crucified Christ. So what has Stephen been driving at? The nation has a long history of rejecting God. Started with Joseph. They rejected him, the twelve patriarchs. That consistently went all the way through the nation's history. They rejected Moses. They disowned him. They disowned the law. They disowned the temple. They have a history of resisting the blessing, the plan, the purpose, and the person of God. And now Stephen says, you're doing just as your fathers did. Your ancestors were a disobedient, obstinate, and an apostate people, and you're doing the same thing. Because you have resisted Christ... You have resisted the law. Because they would not trust Christ and accept Him as their Messiah, they had rejected the law because He was the fulfillment of the law, and they had rejected the temple because He was the fulfillment of the temple. And to not trust in Him is to repudiate the law and everything God did. That's why He drives it home to them and hits them right between the eyes, saying, you are just like your rebellious and apostate fathers. They rejected everything that God ever did and said, and you've done the same thing. Wow. You see what he's driving at? Would, would you want to debate Stephen? No wonder they lost to him, right? Who wants to argue with that? Luke says they couldn't cope with the wisdom of the spirit with which he spoke. 
Well, I guess. But here he's confronted them with their sin. Notice that Stephen really doesn't sound concerned with getting off. You get that impression? He's really not concerned with answering the objections and trying to get an acquittal from the council. He's not interested in that. What is he interested in doing? You know, drive home to them their rejection of the Messiah. It's going to end up costing him his life. And listen, you and I should not get prideful and say, well, those dirty Jews, well, if I'd have lived then, I wouldn't have done that. That's dead wrong. If you and I had lived then, we would have done that. If God had said to you, instead of to Abraham in Mesopotamia back then, I'll make from you a great nation, guess what? The story would be the same. Why? Because Jew is no better than Gentile. Gentiles certainly aren't any better than Jews. No matter what the story would have been, no matter who the person would have been, the story would have been the same. A consistent and persistent rejection of Christ. How many people do you know who can hear the message of the gospel and turn away from it time and time and time and time again when judgment is impending upon them? And they will not trust Christ. They will not believe in Him. Why? Because they're just like the Jews of old and just like the Jews of today and just like every unsafe person today. They have ears, but they can't hear. Eyes, but they can't see. And they will not repent. And the Jews are the same. That's the story of the Jews. That's the story of you and I. And if it were not for the effective, gracious gift of God, none of us would be saved. We'd be duplicating the same thing that the Jews did. Let me ask you two questions this morning. Have you rejected Christ? Do you understand that to reject Him is to reject the law? To reject Him is to reject God. It's to reject the temple. It's to reject everything that God has ever said or done. Because He is truth incarnate. He is the Word of God in flesh. He is God in human flesh. And He is truth in human flesh. And to reject Him is to reject everything about God. Because He's the fulfillment of the law. Let me ask you a second question. Believers, are you an obstinate, stiff-necked people? Always resisting the Holy Spirit? Or do you yield yourself to the will of God? And obey Him. What's the condition of your heart? Are you like the Jews of Stephen's day, bearing the, all the outward signs of a covenant relationship with God, but enjoying none of it? Because inwardly your heart does not belong to Him? What's the condition of your heart? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for men like Stephen who have so boldly stood up and proclaimed the truth. And Father, we are convicted this morning of the reality that oftentimes our hearts slowly drift from You. And we bear outwardly all of the outward trappings of spirituality and Christianity in a relationship with You. And yet, so suddenly we can wake up and our hearts are far from You. And I would ask, Father, would it never be said of any of us that we are a stiff-necked and obstinate people, uncircumcised in the heart, but that we would be able to say with James that we have received the Word implanted which is able to save our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.